Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello and welcome to this podcast mini-series analysing humanitarianism through the lens of private resilient development, cases from Kenya. My name is Edwish Martin, I'm a PhD candidate at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the host for this podcast. Together with colleagues at the Norwegian University of Life Science and the Peace Research Institute Oslo, through this podcast we bring together humanitarian actors, scholars, development practitioners, community leaders and civil society actors to discuss the implications of climate resilient development for humanitarian policy and action. Three case studies in the Kenyan drylands are used to explore different dimensions of the enabling conditions which underpin climate resilient development. Hello and welcome to our final episode of the mini-series on humanitarianism and climate resilient development. Uh, today we have three guest speakers with us. First is Dr. Halvard Buhorg, is a research professor at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. He's also a professor of political science at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. He leads and has directed a number of research projects on security dimensions of climate change and geographical aspect of armed conflict, notably for the European Union, the World Bank and the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. He's also a chapter lead author in the IPCC 6 assessment reports. Our second speaker is Rama Hassan, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Copenhagen and the University of Nairobi. She's interested in social development research in the field of governance, gender and human rights. She's conducted various research studies for multiple development agencies, as well as worked in enhancing citizens' involvement in governance work. Her current research is focused on community land rights and pastoral resilience in Kenya under the Rights and Resilience Project at the University of Nairobi. And finally, our third speaker, who is known to the to those who have listened to the previous episodes, is Dr. Siri Eriksson, who is a professor at the Faculty of Landscape and Society at the Norwegian University of Life Science in Norway. And she has extensive research experience in the field of climate change and development and is the lead author in the sixth assessment report of the IPCC Working Group 2. Um, Siri has also conducted field research on the politics of local adaptation to climate change in East Africa, particularly in Kenya, as well as in Norway. So welcome to all of you and thanks for accepting the invitation. Looking forward to engaging discussions with you. So perhaps to start with, uh, in this episode, there were many discussions on the linkages between different humanitarian issues, uh, for instance, uh, conflicts and climate change and the interactions with humanitarian and development efforts. And often the narrative is on how climate change is contributing or may contribute to conflicts, uh, and drought is often seen as an exacerbating uh, tension in Kenya. But as some of the interviewees in the previous episode highlighted, it's often more complex with multiple stresses um, and drivers having deep-rooted political economic cause. So perhaps my first question is, how do we make sense? Uh, how do we better understand these linkages and the current discourse on conflicts and climate change? Um, perhaps starting with you, Halvard? Yeah, I think you uh, hit the nail on the head when you refer to this as an issue that is fairly complex. 
Um, and I think there are two broad aspects that we could identify uh, in your question. Um, and, and the research on climate and conflict also uh, broadly reflects that duality. Um, on the one hand, uh, you have the link from climate, climate change and climatic events to various forms of conflict. Um, and this is where most of the scientific attention has been uh, devoted. And here, research has progressed rapidly over the last decade or so, uh, where uh, research has um, gradually uh, broadened uh, the the horizon, so to speak, to focus on, on a much broader variety of conflict outcomes, for example, not only focusing on the most severe civil wars, which we saw in empirical research, uh, especially quantitative empirical research a decade ago, but now also understanding conflict outcomes in a much broader sense. Um, also much more uh, emphasis today on facilitating contexts that might inhibit or facilitate violence uh, rather than assuming a more naive uh, and, and overly general association between climate and insecurity. Um, and then there's also been much more focus over the years in trying to identify and also empirically evaluate uh, the importance of various indirect causal pathways. So rather than assuming that there is a direct association between shifting temperature levels or shifting precipitation patterns and violent outcomes, trying to trace indirect pathways, be that through uh, livelihood insecurity, um, food insecurity, uh, forced mobility, etc. That said, of course, while progress has been uh, considerable, uh, there's a lot of knowledge gap uh, remaining in this field, which also makes it interesting and, 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 and uh, fascinating to continue to do research in this space. Overall, uh, uh, research on the connection from climate in its various forms to conflict uh, shows that there can be a connection in particular cases or in particular contexts, but overall the effect is relatively modest when you compare that effect to effect of primary drivers of violence, such as uh, different forms of uh, malgovernance, uh, discrimination, uh, but also socioeconomic challenges um, and, and, and economic inequalities between groups. And then you have the other and, and, and complementary link, which is from conflict to climate change impacts. Um, that effect or that link is arguably uh, even more profound and more uh, important, uh, but until le- recently it has received much less scientific attention. Now, we know that armed conflict is a barrier to development and some even frame it as development in research by undermining economic development by uh, uh, challenging uh, stable livelihoods, etc. Um, and of course, that in turn may make uh, affected communities and individuals and households uh, more vulnerable to uh, the hazards uh, associated with climate and climate change. Um, and if you look at uh, today's most severe humanitarian crises from Afghanistan to Yemen, uh, many of them are shaped by lasting conflict and then compounded by extreme weather events. Uh, so this association from climate through vulnerability to adverse climate change impacts uh, also is a very important one. Thank you. Perhaps I would pass it on to Rama, who also does research in that area. Thank you, Alvard, uh, for pointing out uh, these important points, um, particularly struck by the need for us to move from the course of pathways to look at the indirect pathways. And here I would also suggest that we look at uh, a systems approach, where we look at the nexus rather than this course of pathways, because um, as you suggest, there are other indirect pathways other than food insecurity, there's a bigger problem we face in East Africa on natural resource um, access, questions of um, access to land and other natural resources and um, 
um, security of uh, Kenya on in this area. So, um, and I agree that uh, there has been rapidly progressing research on the climate conflict nexus, and uh, one of the ways to understand the linkages and to look at the the barrier, uh, some of the barriers and the drivers would be to also focus on the nexus. And of course, you pointed out some of them to include questions of governance. But at the center of this is also wanted to bring, I uh, wanted to mention the natural resource question, which continues um, to be unresolved in most of East Africa and the Kenyan rangelands, specifically where I work, um, where security of um, tenure and access to land in a place where land is increasingly uh, getting a lot of focus, but the humanitarian crisis coming both from internal conflicts, but also from the climate effects. So just looking at the nexus of these multiple um, indirect pathways would be critical, as you've pointed out. Thank you, Rama. That's uh, indeed, I think the question of uh, land access came up in most of the episodes. Um, Siri, you wanted to comment as well? I wanted just to pick up uh, briefly on a point about conflict as a driver of vulnerability. Uh, there's emerging attention now to how conflict and violence can actually be an outcome of climate measures themselves, that both climate change mitigation and climate change adaptation measures and interventions actually intervene in existing conflict dynamics and may in some cases even intensify them. And the fact that when they then potentially exacerbate inequity and exacerbate vulnerability, that is a critical issue for potentially maladaptive outcomes of climate um, measures. So that's also an emerging issue that I think is, is very relevant to understanding the problematic of the interlinkages between conflict and climate change. Thank you. And related to this, because this where um mentioned quite a lot in the episode was on the difficulties actually to coordinate and organize different stakeholders, um, especially in the context of institutional and policy change. We talked about devolution, the Community Land Act, uh, but also changes in pastoral livelihoods, which are making humanitarian aid targeting more difficult. And they really bring questions of climate justice, public participation and inclusion to the forefront. So perhaps asking Rama first, uh, how do you see these changing authority relations affecting pastoral resilience? Thank you for also giving us a chance to talk about the institutions, the changes um, that are happening alongside changes happening in uh, the communities that live, uh, live in these rangelands, for instance, where we work and in other parts of the world where there is humanitarian crisis. And of course, you center the difficulty to coordinate the crisis of funding and lack of planning. And we've observed or read about these knee-jerk reactions with multiple organizations and infrastructure involved responding to the humanitarian crisis, both the state and the non-state uh, mobilizing in different directions. But apart from the multiple institutions and, and the coordination lapses that you mentioned, we find that uh, maybe what could be the missing connection here is the lack of the community-centered programs, and that uh, refers to the point of inclusion, because if devolution, as is in Kenya currently, for instance, was supposed to bring more people's voices to the center, include pastoral communities and other communities to discuss and understand their different approaches that are that fit their livelihoods, especially in 
where there's climate crisis and um, drought recurring all over, then we needed to see this changing land laws, changing um, authority, both working hand in hand with the communities themselves. And the nature of these communities is also changing. So I feel that the attention has not been paid to the nature of community organized, how the communities are organized currently. So latest, the research that we have, for instance, on how pastoralist communities are organized has changed. So we could talk about that when we talk about research, but other than the resilience about uh, of communities to respond to shocks, to adapt, to diversify, there's also relational approaches of resilience that we could pay attention to that center their networks, their ties and kinship, because the changing authority is weak, could also be weakening existing um, changing community systems. So if the mobilization and coordination of um, humanitarian assistance would then pay attention to how communities are um, adapting themselves or their resilience is, is um, changing or evolving. And that could be, I think, in my view, one of the ways in which we could respond to humanitarian crisis because uh, pastoral communities and other communities are also changing alongside the changing uh, authorities that are, um, as I've mentioned, have had a difficulty to coordinate. And there's like multiple organ, multiple institutions, uh, overlapping roles, and sometimes always major reactions. Thank you. Um, perhaps I would pass on to Siri. Thank you. Rama has picked up on some uh, critical issues uh, here, I think. Now, in terms of climate resilient development, which is about how societal choices are made by multiple actors and the interaction between you know, multiple decisions uh, that Rama was also getting to, um, climate resilient development is, is enabled through the quality of interactions between these multiple organizations, whether you know it's civil society, government, private sector, NGOs, community-based organizations, state and non-state actors. And the four features that client resilient development then highlights is equity and justice, ecosystem stewardship, inclusion, and knowledge diversity. So where these features are prominent qualities in the in the interaction between actors, uh we're more likely to be able to advance climate resilient development over time. So the question really then is how does devolution actually affect these types of interactions? And one way, of course, is to look at these shifts in authority relations over land, as we see in the, in the three, uh, local cases that the, the podcasts have looked at. Um, and of course, land and authority relations Overland are key both to livelihoods, but also fundamentally an arena where contestations of power play out. And the three things here I'd like to pick up on that's relevant to climate resilient development and then uh, how that plays out in local pastoral contexts. So first, how is the vulnerability problem itself understood within interactions or within or by organizations that have the authority to make decisions. And who decides what local resilience is or what necessary local transformation is, what it looks like, for example, livelihood transformation? Is vulnerability located as a sort of 
deficiency of the so-called vulnerable groups where their capacity needs to be built and they need to be, you know, sensitized and their livelihoods need to be shifted? Or is it located, you know, as part of vulnerable situations where people are put in vulnerable situations through the effects of conflict, through the effects of marginalization, through the effects of climate change and so on? So that was the first point. The second point is to take the example of actually our understanding then of ecosystem stewardship. So to what extent do these interactions incorporate different sorts of understanding of what ecosystem stewardship might be, our place in the world, which, of course, there's very deep understanding of that within pastoral society. So how do we understand, uh, you know, care and stewardship for uh, other people, for society and nature as one system? Or do we still understand stewardship as in, interpreted still as a sort of maximizing exploitation um, for consumption? The third point then is how are resources used and managed? Are they used and managed flexibly in collaborative ways uh, that are required in the context of pastoralism? Or do with the author, changing authority relations uh, and changing policies, is access to land more privatized? Is it made more, you know, as a political uh, currency in elections? Is there, you know, increased competition over actually ownership of land? So I think there, you know, three key issues here. There's no direct answers, and there's probably, a, you know, multidimensional effects of uh, devolution on these issues. But I think they are key to understanding what resilience actually is. Thank you, Siri. I think that's a really um, interesting uh, framework to think about. Um, and I'm sure that Rama would also like to comment because you've also done quite, if we talk about patterns of marginalization and land rights, you've also done quite a lot of um, work on pastoral women, especially land rights. Yeah, very important points that she raises. And just to add that on the changing authorities, the different policies and actions um, towards either privatization or sustainable livelihoods and how it is seen from outside has also had an effect on communities' resilience because uh, there has also been, I think this has this evidence that the ideas, external ideas about what forms of what forms and modes of production are most useful for the rangelands and how people view pastoralism in the three case studies has also affected development in this area and even response to humanitarian um, uh, crisis. But just to um, point to how the changing authority and the different policies affect different groups in pastoralist communities differently, that is also known, but also centering how providing policies to counter some of the difficulties that place multiple burden on women, for instance, young women, and, and and issues of land and who gets to own land and the dominance of the older males in these uh, communities, and just having paying attention to whether the changing authorities are also paying attention to the changing changes in these communities, like I had mentioned earlier, and some of the other roles women are taking on in the resilience strategies, uh, the relational approaches, and how they access land either through substitution of power through their sons, or are they doing it by negotiating with their kin 
or are they doing it through finance as some have gone to school and so some of these dynamics could also draw onto what is happening inside communities that the authorities are changing from outside but internally centers of power are also shifting among those communities thank you rama so when we started thinking about this podcast we were interested to explore what thinking about humanitarianism through a climate resilient development pathway lens would uh, bring out for climate planning and decision making in quite complex settings uh, and we had some very industry interesting discussion in these episodes and actually also um, just down difficulties in coordinating uh, but also on um, how do we work with different understandings of desired outcomes for instance knowing that there are quite some generational differences in social aspiration or different understanding between uh, people who are doing conservation and uh, pastoralists in, in Kenya for instance So perhaps uh, asking Siri first, as you were part of the lead author on the chapter on climate resilient development in the IPCC report, how do you see the climate resilient development concept um, helping us to think about these tensions? And are there tensions that are irreconcilable? Thank you. Climate resilient development, what it does is really to place systemic change at the center. Climate resilient development is the process of implementing mitigation and adaptation in ways that advance sustainable development. And that brings much deeper dimensions of equity and sustainable development. As And as we've been discussing, the interaction between diverse actors and their diverse interests in that process of making societal development choices. So first, I think the way that it's helpful in this context is that it helps highlight how mitigation and adaptation are not just isolated measures. I think it's fairly obvious in the in the local context of conflict, development gaps, marginalization, and so on. It actually doesn't make sense to see mitigation and adaptation as very sort of technical, isolated measures that are separate from development challenges and processes. They are actually part of development challenges and processes. So what we're talking about at the local level is not to develop these very isolated measures, but actually how do climate measures help the types of systemic change that we need? Um, and systemic change can be, you know, along the lines of less violent type of conflicts and contestations. Uh, we've heard from the case of Tukana, the importance of, of health systems as a fundamental you know systemic issue long-term livelihoods being proactive rather than reactive in humanitarian responses um, the need for uh, proper institutional systems but also the interlinkages between those types of societal system transitions with you know energy system transitions um, climate resilient infrastructure and so on so That's one issue that, that climate resilient development helps us see the issue also at local level as systemic rather than as very technical measures. But the second aspect that it also highlights how, in a sense, conflict cannot be avoided. Conflict is actually part of the development process. And these systemic changes do take place through contestations. So, Uh, climate resilient development kind of helps us see and highlight the 
contestations and the contestations and different interests between groups and different actors is actually part of the process. But also to highlight that then what is required is along those four dimensions that I mentioned earlier, equity and justice, ecosystem stewardship, inclusion, knowledge, diversity, that they become very prominent parts of the interaction. So it's often about being able to hold some of these tensions that actually exist in development processes and not sort of depoliticizing them as though there are neat solutions that are just 100% positive for absolutely everyone involved. Every intervention has positive and negative effects on different groups. But to be able to be more transparent about how these prioritizations are made and, and whose voice has counted and which priority has been made uh, by whom. So... I think unless we actually take these into account, there is a danger of climate measures or or even climate resilient development becoming sort of tools of oppression. I mean, they can be you know, used to justify the types of measures that actually exacerbate inequity and vulnerability. So I think climate resilient development, when used in the way that it has been explained in the IPCC report, can help bring out some of these quite difficult and complex issues because development is complex. Thank you, Siri. That's a really interesting um, interesting way of that the climate resilient development um, pathway lens is bringing to the discussion. Um, perhaps I would also have Halvard um, contribute. Uh, yeah, um, I very much agree with what Siri just said. And in fact, she covered much of what I thought I could uh, add to this question. But uh, let me just briefly reflect on, on the topic of development and contestation uh, from the perspective of uh, conflict research. And uh, as Siri mentioned, you know, um, conflict is an integral part of development. Um, development means change and change is sometimes unwanted or it is perceived as risky or uncertain. And especially so if actors uh, um, perceive that this change is poorly managed. Uh, resistance to change is not unique uh, to vulnerable societies. I think that is also important to, to highlight or to the developing world more generally. Uh, but consequences uh, may be worse uh, if change occurs without local agency and um, if change is uh, more or less enforced uh, from outside through uncount- uh, unaccountable uh, and non-transparent political processes. Um, otherwise, you might end up with what they refer to as tools of oppression, um, which I think is another nice way of framing uh, the challenges with, with ensuring inclusive and um, sustainable uh, development. Uh, so the key here is not really to avoid conflict uh, uh, when we invest in development and climate resilient development, but rather to try to facilitate and establish institutions and norms and political processes that are conducive to peaceful um, conflict resolution and inclusive um, um, development. And that can be uh, within or also outside of, of climate resilient development programs specifically, uh, also certainly uh, related to peace building, uh, investing in trust building programs, um, uh, investing in education, and also enabling uh, civil society actors that can um, 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 ensure that also uh, the voice of, of, of of the locals are heard in these uh, um, processes. Thank you, Halvard. So if we think about also trying to facilitate uh, processes that are conducive to inclusion and to um, to peace, as you 
mention, um, we asked all the speakers in the previous questions about in the previous episodes about uh, what was the role of research um, on humanitarianism and climate change. Uh, I think from the Chirkana episode, it was reflected that often um, there's a lack of research actually in areas that uh, might be experiencing conflict. Um, and from another episode, we had the comment that research is really important to help deconstruct some of the common assumptions on drivers of vulnerability, for instance, especially given the historical bias against pastoralism in the region. Um, so perhaps as a concluding question, I would ask uh, each of you to to comment on on what would be your answer to the role of research and how it can contribute to these efforts. I would perhaps start with Halvard. Yeah, sure. Again, uh, coming from a background of uh, quantitative and comparative conflict research, really focusing on the more severe forms of violent conflict and not necessarily uh, being an expert on on, on more local challenges that are not necessarily uh, severe at the violent uh, level of violence that we think of when we study civil wars. Um, I think that one challenge or, or, or one role for science within my field of research is really to debunk some myths that still exist uh, and some notions of very simplistic associations between climate uh, or environment on the one hand and then uh, conflict, insecurity and violence on the other. Um, because there are some uh, pretty strong language still uh, in, in this space uh, that I think need to be challenged by uh, scientific uh, uh, evidence. Um, at the same time, we need to take seriously, and, and as uh, researchers, of course, this is our obligation also to really highlight and to better understand where, when, and why uh, adverse climatic changes and adverse environmental changes could have and can have and have um, measurable impacts on, on conflict risk. Um, Rama mentioned uh, in a response to an earlier question also this nexus approach, which I think is very helpful in this regard in, in you know, taking this more comprehensive uh, approach to studying these conditions um, uh, and, and how we can facilitate peace as, ob uh, as opposed to uh, uh, potentially uh, contributing to, to just worsening the situation by, by in advocating for development that could uh, accentuate existing inequalities in a society. Um, also, finally, there is a lot of talk about climate proofing of peace building. Uh, that may be uh, very useful in particular uh, contexts. Uh, I do believe, however, that it is equally important also to conflict-proof uh, uh, climate resilient development. Again, referring back to some uh, something that Siri mentioned earlier about how uh, human or social responses to climate change through mitigation adaptation programs may also uh, have adverse impacts on insecurity, on, on security, uh, for example, through maladaptation, if planned poorly or if executed in a suboptimal sub way. So also being mindful not only of how climate and climate change may constitute security risks, but also how society's uh, response to these uh, hazards could potentially result in insecurity is a challenge for research and for science to understand better and then communicate to the decision makers. Interesting. Thanks, Harvard. I like this idea of climate and conflict proofing. Um, perhaps I would ask the question next to Rama. Thank you so much. I really agree with the points made by Harvard, especially on the one on debunking weeds in our research work and also reflecting more into the broad and multiple studies that have happened in different spaces, especially the East African rangelands, reflecting more on what we study, how we study it, 
in how this knowledge gets consumed and how it informs policy and in bigger global climate and humanitarian stages, like uh, what we just had recently at COP. You know, even looking at the local and our own regional spaces and how community experiences can be centered more through our research programs and projects, both during the design, but also in the um, the evidence that we bring out, how we can center their voices, but also ensure that it's useful for policy. Because if we are talking about the main outcomes of big global processes, as the ideas like or programs like loss and damage funds, and how they are supposed to compensate vulnerable countries for economic and non-economic losses, then how can research come in to ensure that in principle there is you know, equity and justice, the points that Siri was mentioning, and even how compensation can reach the communities that are facing these challenges, those livelihoods, whose livelihoods have been severely impacted, for instance, or have been made impossible by climate change, and what forms of compensation can we, through our research, bring to the table. In terms of debunking the myths, point made by Harvard, it is also an opportunity to counter, bring counter evidence because for a while now, the pastoralism and its viability evidence has been presented over time, challenging this mode of production and like sort of government interventions, both outrightly obvious and other hidden or tacit methods to settle communities in the rangelands. There should be counter evidence to show how it's actually the best suited economic activity for the rangelands and also to bring more um, evidence about how internal community systems could work to, um, you know, counter conflict and violent conflict, especially intercommunity conflicts and issues of natural resource management. So, when thinking about humanitarianism, so then how does the equity and just what does equity and justice mean for these communities? These are points that Siri mentioned earlier, and how can we include them in our research to ca- to capture the the ideas around equity and justice? And an inclusion in these communities so that they become practical for their day-to-day operations and for governments to have to take these very important um, documents and ideas at the global level and make them useful uh, and practical for communities. So generally it is just about designing research that is inclusive that has been mentioned before in previous episodes and speakers here but then centering these voices is an ongoing individual responsibility, but it's also some, a systemic uh, thing that can be pushed by different research groups and governments and global in global spaces. Thanks, Irma. Um, yeah, I really like your um, comments on the centering of community voices. I think the f- speaker for the first episode was also um, explaining how this is really important to build trust um, and, uh, and for equity and justice, for instance. Um, then finally, I would ask uh, Siri the same question. Thank you. Um, I think science needs to be a courageous voice and deal with the uncomfortable. On one hand, being in part the voices of the vulnerable, as as has been explained just by uh, Baba really well. But also, it's very important to provide critical social science understanding about inequities and systemic change. What does it actually take to make the changes that we need? To highlight what's actually not neat and easy. I mean, especially in 
view of the current development gaps and inequities that already exist, but also as we approach and exceed one and a half degrees of warming. I mean, how how difficult it actually is and what sort of difficult decisions will have to be made. I think it's important that this critical social science looks at, well, what is it that's actually holding unsustainable systems in place currently? What is it that needs to be shifted? How do we need to move beyond often the more techno-managerial measures that sort of fit into current power relations or fit into current development modes to think about, well, how does development need to shift more systemically, not just in the practical sphere, but in the governance sphere, in within knowledge systems and so on. So even then on governance structures and, and knowledge systems themselves, what is it that needs to be shifted? What I mean, how are we even ourselves part of knowledge systems that may be perpetuating or entrenching uh, current systems rather than contributing to change. And here I think Rama put it really nicely about how within research we may need to shift modes into more sort of transdisciplinary research and, and also involving those often thought of as, as vulnerable as, as experts within, within the research. So in a sense, we are, um, the role of research is to provide evidence but to go beyond that to provide you know critical evidence sometimes uncomfortable and unpopular evidence but also to we are part of the interaction between the between you know different actors that make decisions regarding development and regarding climate change measures so our role is also to think of our role in that how to what extent are we able to push actors out of their comfort zone as we have to understand both development and climate change linkages in new ways? Are we able to contribute to some of these contestations and and, uh, highlighting some of the tensions and potential maladaptive outcomes? And then at the same time as sort of pushing actors, including ourselves, out of our comfort zones, I also think that research can be an arena for the meeting of actors and the different understandings. So I think research actually has a very important role, and I I think it has an important critical role at the same time as we have to be very reflective and self-critical, in a sense, of our own role within within these dynamics. Thank you, Sarah. That's really so powerful um, sentence here of the role of research in highlighting what is not needs and research as a meeting arena. I think that's, that concludes well um, our discussion today. Um, thank you so much to all of you for taking part. Uh, we're very grateful that you gave some of your time today um, and shared with us some really interesting insights. So thank you for inviting us. It was a pleasure to take part in this podcast episode. Thank you so much, Edwidge, for bringing us together and for the team for your reflections. Really great. Thank you, Edwish, Havad and Rama for a very interesting discussion of a, of a topic that I think is critical at this time. I'd be interested to hear, Edwish, now that you've uh, carried out four podcasts that involve discussions with six different people, 
What are you, your key takeaways on this topic of climate resilient development and humanitarianism? And is there anything that surprised you? I think there's been some very interesting discussions in these episodes. Uh, perhaps I'll start with what I found surprising. My own PhD work is based in Kajudo County, so I had limited knowledge of Turkana and Samburu, and it struck me the many similarities with the context I'm familiar with, especially contestation around land and land use, for instance. Um, but the discussions encourage me to also think about the context-specific conflict dynamics and their interactions with other drivers, particularly challenge me to think further about some of the linkages that we might not always consider, such as the way humanitarian and climate change interventions can trigger conflicts uh, too. Um, for the key takeaways, it was great to hear about some of the new initiatives towards bottom-up adaptation planning and financing, such as the Floca mechanism that uh, Dennis talked about in the Jakana episode. Um, there were also some very interesting discussions on the way humanitarian aid is changing towards more long-term planning, in a way that aims to strengthen people's dignity, um, although there's still uh, much to do, of course. A final takeaway... Um, I was inspired by the discussions on the contribution that research is making or can make in humanitarian and climate change research. Um, the fact that this may involve changing the ways that we do certain things, um, the modes of research, as you mentioned, Siri. We also talked about the importance of furthering knowledge diversity, um, what equity and justice means, and the importance of continuing to provide critical evidence. Halbert and Rama talked about the debunking of myths, the importance of challenging common narrative and the relations that are complex and that demand nuanced analysis. So just as Siri described research as a meeting arena, um, my hope is that this podcast mini-series created such an arena, that these conversations are of interest to scholars, practitioners and community members alike, um, and that this conversation will continue uh, beyond this podcast mini-series. I'm thankful to all the interviewees um, and the team of researchers that contributed to develop this mini-series, including from behind the scene, uh, Professor Matthew Cashmore at NMBU. Thanks to the NCHS as well for hosting the mini-series. To find more information on the NCHS, you can visit their website. And to find more information and resources on related topics, you can also check out the C-Hub website, the Learning Hub for Climate Change Adaptation and Development. Thank you for listening.